I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I use my difference to make a difference every day in the role that I'm in. I try to make sure that how I felt as a person who was different throughout going to an all-white school. Unfortunately, I didn't go to my dad's school. Going to an all-white school, going to a predominantly white university and grad school, being in organizations that are predominantly white. I use how I felt in some of those positions, sometimes how I felt marginalized, how I felt attacked at some points early on. I try to make sure that I remember that and use that to make sure that nobody else feels that way. Who I encounter, my shadow of my leadership, my sphere of span of influence, that they don't feel the way I did. I gotta make sure that that happens. How you day, how you day. That was the voice of Celeste Warren. Today we're talking about how to be a diversity, equity, and inclusion champion. How can you ensure that everyone feels like they're accepted and engaged and they're valued? And Celeste has had quite the experience doing this. Our interview focuses on the increased focus on diversity and inclusion since the murder of George Floyd, what it takes to actually be DEI ambassador. And for people that don't know what DEI is, it's diversity, equity, and inclusion, sometimes known as D&I, diversity and inclusion, or sometimes known as DEIB. Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, Belonging, or Jedi, Justice, Equity, Diversity, Inclusion. This interview, much like a lot of the interviews in this podcast, is really focusing on how a lot of people's journey into this field comes from personal experiences or observations. And I really hope that you can reflect on your own personal experiences and observations and see how you can champion people in your life. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of As Told by Nomads, and today's guest is Celeste Warren. Now, Celeste is Vice President of Global Diversity and Inclusion Center of Excellence at Merck. Prior to joining Merck in 1997, Warren worked for nine years in human resource at Kraft Foods and General Foods. She has been honored with many awards, including Black Enterprises' top executives in global diversity and inclusion, Savoy Magazine's most influential women in corporate America, Women's E! News, 21 Leaders of the 21st Century, and Diversity Women's Magazine, Elite 100 List. So she's prolific. And now <laughs> she, has, she has an amazing book that she's going to talk to us about. And we're, we're going to dive into the culture of what exactly it means to truly be a diversity and inclusion ambassador. As someone who is the son of an ambassador, I'm very excited to dive into this topic. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Pleasure is mine. Yeah, we were having such a 
fun conversation before we hit record. And I wanted to bring some of that here. And the way that I would do that would be to talk about what got you into this field. Why diversity, equity, inclusion? You've got all these awards for it, but what drew you to this field? From a little girl, my father was the first Black teacher in Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio, that region of the state. Every day I had a front row seat to his challenges, his successes, opportunities every day at the dinner table. He and my mom would be talking, you know, about his day and, you know, he had his good days, had had his bad days. But we would hear from what he was going through as the first. And so it was something that was just ingrained in me. And, and as a little kid, I didn't know what to ask him. You know, I just was listening. And then when it got into high school and then in college and formative years, I, you know, asked him a lot of questions around being the first and what that was like. And I remember one story he told me, he graduated from Pitt and also had a master's degree as well from another university in education and English was his specialty. And so when he got hired, his first job out of school, his first job was at this school district and they didn't hire him as a, an English teacher. They hired him as the gym teacher, physical ed. The, other piece of that is they didn't even have a gymnasium. So he taught people out in the parking lot, taught the kids out in the parking lot every period that he had a class. While he was teaching them, the parents of these students would come and park their cars and watch this black man teaching their son or daughter. He's telling me the story I think I was just graduated, I think, from grad school. And he's telling me the story and I'm getting angrier and angry. It's like, you know, you know, what is going on? What did they think you were going to do to their kids? Right. And I said, well, what did you do? And he said, I just kept doing my job. You know, I taught the kids and one by one, those cars just started disappearing and they didn't come anymore until eventually none of them came. And it was, you know, just doing his job, garnering trust, of course. But in that day and age, you know, you can imagine this was the 70s, late 60s, 70s. You know, civil rights was still hot and heavy. And just having to have to go through that and his level of he's very disciplined, very, okay. I know in order for me to get my message across, in order for me to be able to do what I need to do in this space, I need to make sure that my message is being received. It reminds me a little bit of the story about Jackie Robinson, right? Why they picked him to be the first black baseball player in the major leagues. And it's like, okay, he fit this persona of who they wanted to go. It's a little bit of that. My father, you know, just trekking and being the first person here, first principal, black principal, first black assistant superintendent. And it was like he had this discipline. It was guarded, but it was still he was still able to push the envelope with all of these individuals to get change. When he died, he passed away in uh, four years ago. Oh, my gosh. Sorry for your loss. Yeah. Yeah. And when he passed away, the uh, funeral procession, we drove it as we were going to the cemetery past the school district where he was the teacher and principal and superintendent. And all of the kids lined up on both sides of the street. The students, they let them out of the out of school early and let them line the streets and just they had signs and everything. So just the impact of, you know, the first black teacher in that area and the first black principal in that area 
it gives me such pride and it instilled in me to make sure that I'm continuing his legacy in what I do. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's such a beautiful story. And, uh, it lays the context for what you do today. You do a lot of things in change management, diversity, equity, inclusion, really around the efforts of human behavior and understanding how to find ways for people to see people for who they really are. And I can see how your father working through that environment in uh, in Pennsylvania was able to model that for you in life. Because now, now you do it in industries. I often say we spend most of our time in some sort of work institution or some sort of educational institution. In work, it's it's hard for people to feel fully whole if their identities are marginalized. So anyone listening to this episode, if they're going to ask you that, well, I hear you, you know, Celeste, I, I love that, but I'm on the marginalized side. I also don't have the power dynamic here. How can I work towards DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and ensure I feel seen and heard for who I am? What would you say to that person? The person who feels marginalized? The person who feels marginalized and has lower power dynamic and is struggling to feel that way. That is so critical that the person who doesn't feel like they're in this position of power, doesn't feel like they are empowered to make a change, that they try to own that power and get that power. And they don't need permission to get that power. You know, part of what I talk about is that everybody has to understand the role that they play in this journey of DE&I, because if they don't, understand that they play a role, we're not going to be able to make the headway that we need to be able to make. I can't even tell you how many times I've spoken to people, both internally and especially externally, that they say, well, Celeste, you know, I hear what you're saying. Great. I'm not a people manager. I'm not in the C-suite. I'm not in HR. I'm just an individual contributor in a business. I'm an employee in a business. What can I do? What I tell them is, you know, you got to understand it's a pyramid effect, right? Usually in any organization, about 20 to 30 percent of the organization are people, managers and leaders and et cetera. The other 70 to 60 to 70 percent of the people are individual contributors, they're employees. And so if they don't see that they can make an impact with the power of just pure numbers in the organization, then we're not going to be able to make the change that we want to see. And so what I tell them is you have to first grab that power back. And how you grab it back is by elevating your voice. There are lots of ways that you can do that. Many organizations, they have the formal employee opinion surveys, right? That you take these culture surveys and stuff like that. And a lot of times half the people don't even take them. But if you truly want to start gaining your power back, Start filling that information out and not just the quantitative rate these things one through five, but when they have the written comments, write stuff down, write things down that you see that are obstacles and barriers to getting in the way of it being the type of culture, inclusive culture that you want to see in the organization. So that's one thing. Always look for those opportunities to elevate your voice, writing down things, filling out surveys. Another thing too is having the opportunity to engage in conversations with your peers, other individual contributors, if you will, other employees by having lunch and learns or coming together and saying, hey, you guys, let's have lunch in conference room ABC on this one side of the cafeteria or whatever. I'm going to send out an article around diversity and inclusion ahead of time. And then let's just kind of have a conversation about it and talk about it and talk about some things that we could be doing together 
elevating our voices together in the organization to impact change. Another thing is a lot of organizations have employee resource groups or affinity groups. Join one, join two if you can. And that collective voice together and elevating your voice. Employee resource groups, especially since the murder of George Floyd, have just grown in importance in organizations. And if they had them, they've grown in importance. And if they didn't have them, they've been able to start them. And so that's another way to really drive DEI and and take the power back that you feel that you don't have. But those are just a few examples. I think these are all great examples because they drive home the concept of engagement and education. When I'm consulting and I'm working with companies, especially across different parts of the world, I've always bring up, well, let's talk about engagement and, and education. How do you measure that? Or what is the current status of that? Can you tell me? And, but then the education, to your point, is you fill out those surveys, you understand what's happening in the company for a status check. But there's also an education of yourself as well as the environment around you and maybe even further understanding what makes other people feel seen, heard, and understood. And it's going to look vastly different across divisions, across continents, across states, and you know, across several intersections. So it's, I think it's a good point to drive home. Absolutely. Across different people. As many different people that exist in the world, there's that many different ideas, perspectives around how they view different issues that are happening in the world today. I was talking to a group of women in New York earlier this week. And, you know, I said every issue that exists, whether it's, you know, in policy and or economic or social, whatever it is, there are so many different perspectives around that single issue because we all view it through the lens of our culture, our personal experiences, et cetera, our lived experiences. And so DEI is wrapped all around every single issue. Now, add on top of that, especially in the United States and in other countries around the world, too. The divisiveness that exists around, especially in the political space, there's such divisiveness that exists. Everything is politicized. You know, if we can politicize masks, for God's sake, whether you wear them or whether you don't, you know with the state that we're in. And so because of different communities of people view that issue differently based on their lived experience, DEI is going to continue to be growing in its impact, in its importance, and its relevance to corporations and companies and agencies and institutions, whether they be educational, health systems, whatever. It's just going to increase and increase and increase and keep people like you and me in business. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so speaking of being in business, we've seen an increase in that since the murder of George Floyd. And you, this has been your bread and butter since, I don't know, like you've been doing this since the 90s. And I'm curious to see if you noticed a shift since the murder of George Floyd. And if that shift you noticed is something you think is sustainable or just performative. Yeah, you know, it's a great question. You know, we in our community, the black community, you know, Trayvon Martin, you know, just you can go back, back Rodney King. You can go back decades where we've seen violence to our people. Right. Especially police violence. What was different about George Floyd was a couple of things. This is my viewpoint. Number one, it was a perfect storm in that we were in the middle of a pandemic. We were all shuttered in place. And so there was not, we weren't stepping on airplanes, trains, automobiles, commuting, doing it, just the busyness. There was just peace, silence. The second thing is 
our connection during that time to anything that was going on in the external world was through television, internet, social media, et cetera. That was our connection. We were just getting into just having all the Zoom meetings and all of that stuff. I think for probably our company shut down in in March, those that were non-essential workers and not in manufacturing and in the labs. And I think for a little bit there, everybody was kind of like, oh, what do we, what do we do? What do we do? And it's like, you know, we are a global company and we do have the infrastructure to be able to have meetings and have been for a while. But our connection to the outside world was through these different mediums. When the murder happened, the third thing that I think everybody, you know, everyone, every news outlet, every media outlet, every Twitter post, every social media outlet, everything was focused on that incident. It made people look. You could not open an iPad, and your phone, your television, nothing without seeing that and seeing it. And then the third thing, too, was the arrogance, the arrogance of that police officer kneeling with his knee on his neck for those minutes, staring into the camera, the the phone camera of that young lady who was filming all of this, who was videoing this, daring us to just basically say, so what? I'm doing this. That's right. I'm doing it. I have a right to be able to do this. That's my privilege. It was the arrogance of those seven and a half, eight minutes of him killing George Floyd was so profound and just showing all of us, regardless of how you identify, that um, disregard for life, that how he treated it, treated treated George Floyd, the disregard for his life was so prevalent in that moment as he sat and stared at the camera and just looked in complete arrogance and defiance. Like, you know, you can't touch me. You can't do anything to me. And so I think that was a perfect storm for people to wake up. Those that weren't aware of what was happening in our community, those corporations that decide, that said for years, we're just focusing on the business. We don't know. We're not talking about those social issues. We just need to focus on the business. That's just what the investors want. That's what the shareholders want. We don't need to do that. But it became very apparent that you could not not raise your voice in that day when that happened in May. And so you had these statements of solidarity. You had in different spaces, education, awareness, community conversations and dialogues, trying to, to build the DNI capabilities of leaders and managers and helping them to understand and listening with empathy and all of those different things, unconscious bias, all of those things that we were doing, but also building kind of the confidence. And I believe that I think that there have been some companies that have just basically checked the box and said, okay, we're over with this thing now. Let's just go back to normal. Although I don't think they could go all the way back to normal. They made two or three actions, put two or three actions in place. They may have hired a chief diversity officer, but didn't give them a budget, didn't give them resources, right? They may have done some things, but there were a lot of things that need to be done. But I truly believe that where we are now with the generation that's hitting the labor market, generation Y that's here, but generation Z that's coming in the labor market, very different viewpoints, the diversity in those generations, we've never seen that in previous generations. 
the fact that they have values and beliefs around diversity, equity, and inclusion that they want to see in the corporations that they work and the companies that they work and the educational institutions that they're a part of and they're attending, they want to see that, those same values and standards. And if they don't see it, they, they're not going to just sit <laughs> and idly by. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <laughs> no, they are not. You know that. I, I know. There's, a, there's an audacity with the diversity. <laughs> As an adjunct professor. <laughs> That's it. That's it. I feel like from a political standpoint as well, investors are asking. I have been in so many investor meetings in the past two years than I have in my previous career, a whole career. And the investors are asking what are you doing in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion? How are you creating an inclusive work environment and culture within your, your organizations? Because they know that culture does eat strategy for lunch. And, and they also know, we also know that all companies, you're one tweet away from your stock dropping, right? Tremendously. We've seen that in different corporations. And so it's a different day and age that we're in now that corporations, the, the role of corporations that responsibility has expanded, not just in delivering your widgets to your customers. You have to have a voice in some aspect, shape or form around social activism. You have to because the shareholders are demanding it. Investors are looking at it. Your employees certainly are demanding it. Candidates out in the labor market are looking at it as well. And your customers are. So, you know, it's a different day and age. And if a company doesn't get that, they're not going to be in business for much longer in this environment. They're just not. I agree. I agree with you. And I think it all goes back to why your book is so important. You're talking about becoming an ambassador, essentially. And you, you wrote it in a way where anyone can see themselves in this equation. In fact, you have three steps. Is that correct? You have three steps. Yep. Three steps. And I made it easy. So it isn't a white paper or you don't have to have a PhD to be able to understand. But it's just basically three things. First thing, understand yourself. Do an assessment of yourself, take whatever unconscious bias education or whatever skills and capability development that you need, but you need to understand yourself. When I first got into this role, title, this was a role that I didn't ask for. In fact, every time that I was put on the succession plan for this, I would always say, no, 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 because look, I take this thing seriously. This is part of my DNA, literally. And so if other people can't take this seriously, I don't want to be in this role in this space because I'm just trudging along doing what I need to do with my area and my group. But I kind of turned this down. But when I first got in this role, I had to do an assessment of myself and understand my blind spots as I was stepping into this role. Because if, if you're going to lead this journey, 
for the organization and help leaders understand. You have to understand what your blind spots are. So I did a lot of personal assessments around my unconscious biases and where were my blind spots and what skills did I have that would help me in this space and what skills did I that I need to develop in this space. And one of them was patience, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Attributes and characteristics as well. So that's the first thing. You've got to get a hold of that because as you are making decisions and counseling people and talking with colleagues and peers, if you're not in touch with that, that can get in the way of how you respond to things and then how you act on various different things. So that's the first thing. Check yourself. The second thing is once you've done that, Look at the environment around you and do an assessment, do an inventory. What are some of those things that are getting in the way of it truly being a diverse and inclusive culture? Your team environment, like the 10 or 15 people that are part of your team, you look at them and say, what's getting in the way of our team being more inclusive, more of a feeling of belonging and feeling valued? If you're a manager, look at your team and also look at your management peers, the team that you're a part of, and look up at your leadership. If you're in the C-suite, the same thing, the shadow of the leader. What shadow are you casting? And do you understand what's going on from that perspective, right? Last thing is all of those ideas and those assessments are, are not worth anything if you don't act. And so once you've done your individual assessment, once you have done the assessment looking at the organization, then put the plans in place. What is it that you need to be doing? What is it that the organization needs to be doing in order for it to be that diverse and inclusive environment that you want it to be? So pretty simple. It's you, it's the environment, and then act. As a professor, you know, I love anything that is a framework. This is a good way to do that because, you know, the beautiful thing about this is that it's not a cookie cutter thing. It's a standardized type of thing people can follow, but when people are reflecting on their biases, on what they need to work on, it's not going to be the same as person Y, because that's a different person. They have different lived experiences. Absolutely. You have to do the work. Yep. You have to do the work. That's it. That's it. You have also, you talked about your father. You have done a beautiful thing where you're, you're passing it on to the next generation. It seems like, you know, from the conversation we had, your children are also very much into the world of creating an, an equitable place for everyone else to feel like themselves. Do you take a tremendous amount of pride in passing it on forward or passing the baton? I do. I do with my kids. And it's so interesting. My daughter's a senior at Arizona State University. My son is a sophomore at Arcadia University here near Philadelphia. And my husband and we talk about this, but it's like we have two kids raised in the same household, but two entirely different personalities, but still very passionate around thank God, around diversity and inclusion and it being a more equitable environment for them for the future. And so, you know, we do our best with our kids. We try to do as best we can not to screw things up for them. Because <laughs> many of the psychiatrists and psychologists always start back with mommy issues, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we try to do as best we can. But uh, yeah, I am because this generation, this next generation, there's so much promise and potential. As I said, they're so diverse. There's such an intersectionality of different. Like It's not like I identify as one thing or two things. They identify in a myriad of different ways, dimensions of diversity you can see and those you can't see. And because of all of that, they have so many different perspectives. You don't have to worry about them elevating their voice. They're going to elevate their voice. That's not even an issue. It's how companies are responding to it. Because right now, 
the especially generation y that's the largest growing labor market that's the workforce now that's it that's there now and it's the largest growing baby boomers are retiring generation x is large as well too but that generation y is the largest one that's growing and z coming up behind them and what worked for the previous generations in the workplace is not going to work for this generation. You know, like, okay, yeah, you have to be in this job for five years and you have to be in that job for five years and that job for five, 10 years. And then you can, you know, you can be promoted to, you know, this job. That's not going to fly. It's about not just the time and job, but it's the skills, the capabilities, the experiences and what they bring to the table. And they feel they bring a lot to the table. They're in such precarious situations early on in their lives, right? We have school shootings. The things that they are dealing with, 15, 14, 13 years old, we didn't have to deal with, you know, back then. I certainly didn't have to. We didn't have the, you know, social media. We didn't have a lot of the things. The world was what our parents told us it was and what we saw on television and not all of the cable channels that we have today too. So, you know, it's a different world for them. And so I feel like I have to embrace them. Because if we don't embrace them and help them, provide a path for them, we're doing them a disservice. We're doing this the world a disservice. I just think it's just really, really critical, really critical. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I find that if one generation doesn't act as a guide, as well as also support the group, you just never know what could happen, right? You create a whole cycle of interest in dynamics that could either be positive or wildly negative. And- it all could have been worked on if if there was a, enough listening and engagement to be done in that sense. It's it's just something that we owe it to each other and the next generation coming on. So absolutely, you're a fascinating woman in, in just understanding. You have a, a keen sense of awareness of understanding how important the current generation is, next generation is, and your generation. And the reason I'm saying fascinating and applying that to you is I work in this field as well. I see a lot of gatekeeping, <laughs> tremendous amount of gatekeeping. But you, as you talk, I'm hearing you simultaneously reference multiple lived experiences, even lived experiences outside of yours. And I find that to be a gift. And I find that to also be something that is uh, unique about yourself. So I don't know if you agree with me that there's a lot of gatekeeping, but I wanted to just acknowledge it because it's just a, I guess... It's a refreshing experience, if you will, just to observe and to hear it back. Kyle, <laughs> uh, you are absolutely right about the gatekeeper. I mean, look what's happening. Let's just take the United States. Look what's happening. Reproductive rights, right? Boom. They're trying to change all the voting districts to try to suppress voting. It reminds me a bit of like apartheid as that was when that was falling and how these People that were in those positions of power, just trying to hold on to whatever they could to make sure that they could hold on to that power. I feel like that's kind of where we are because I'm sitting there scratching my head at some of the gatekeeping and thinking like, why? Why is that important? Why do you care what choice a woman makes about her body? Why are we even discussing that? Why is that even in the courts? You know what I mean? It amazes me. It amazes me. It saddens me, really, to a degree. It's very, very scary because, you know, especially we get to these midterms that are coming up in the United States elections and the importance of just exercising our democratic right to vote, to elevate our voice. It's critical. And there's just too many issues that 
the gatekeepers are trying to keep and they're trying to keep that door shut and it affects a myriad of different people. To me, it's literally sickening. It is really, really sickening to me. But that is the right word, the gatekeepers. That is exactly it. And they're holding on, trying to hold on to that power. And guess what? I can't wait till the 2020 census information comes out. I think it'll start. It usually takes two or three years so they get all of the information. I can't wait to see what that census says, because the early on reads are that white males for the first time in the U.S. history might not be in the majority in this country. And so it'll be quite interesting to see what comes out of that census report that we all did in 2020. You know, we do it every 10 years because there's been a vast change, vast change in the demographics of the United States and of the world. When I used to travel before COVID, I'll eventually get back there in 2023, but I travel a lot outside of the United States. And when I first got in this job eight years ago, I would go and travel different countries and I'd talk about diversity and inclusion and they would be like, oh, that's a U.S. thing. Don't talk to us about that. Don't, you know, that's just a U.S. thing. Don't bring those ideas and, and all that thinking, you know, to our country. And so what I started doing was I would talk about the haves and the have nots in the country. And every country has it, right? They have the haves and they have the have nots. Those are in positions of power, those that aren't. And I would start having these really in-depth conversations around the social, political, the economic environment within that particular country. And we would have these great conversations. Then at the end of the conversation, I'd say, you know, in diversity and inclusion, they go, oh, you know, oh, you're talking about that. And I'd say, well, what do you think we've just been talking about for the last hour? And they would like scratch their head and they're like, oh, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess you're right. And so fast forward, you know, I've been in this job now for eight years and fast forward now where the largest growth that we've seen around our diversity and equity and inclusion initiatives has been in the different regions, Asia Pacific, Europe, Eastern Europe, Latin America. They're not only embracing it, but it is such a huge component of the work that they are doing because they realize it and being able to explain it from the standpoint of there are the haves and there are the have-nots in your country. And let's have a conversation about what that looks like and who there is. Is it classism? Is it gender? Is it color? Um, is it from a LGBTQ plus situation? Is it persons with disabilities? You know, what is it? It exists. And if you don't think it exists, you're doing your, you're lying to yourself, basically. Cause I can walk around, you know, I used to always tell them, I, I can walk in the streets of your city, if whether I'm in London or Paris or wherever I am and see the diversity that exists in your streets. Do they exist in your company? <laughs> they do. I mean, you, you, but you're so right. I mean, I, I come across the same thing. I'm from Nigeria, but I always say we'll have different conversations. They're like, oh, let's talk about the tribes. You know, there's tribalism, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about colorism. Uh, let's talk about cl classism. And then, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because it might look different, but the same sort of mindset haves and have-nots, as you put it, you know, or people who are considered marginalized or what you behave, there's a bias and prejudice feeling that. And there's a system behind that, those bias and prejudices that seem to perpetuate. Yeah. You know, and it's people say to me, well, Celeste, you know, what are some of the, the challenges that you face? And, and I always say, you know, there's a few things, but one of the things when you talk about those beliefs, right, you're telling people to question, in some cases, 
what they heard from mom and dad and auntie and, and grandma and grandpa church. at the dinner table, right? And at church, yeah, <laughs> at their dinner tables when they were growing up and questioning it. And so in some areas, we have to understand that and meet, like you said, meet people where they are, understand that, and then help them to understand the importance of the different perspectives and valuing the different perspectives to create that culture of inclusion where, where it's truly embraced and belonging. But I always get the question, Tyo, about, well, I believe in X, Y, Z, and it's, you know, something really crazy and bordering on racist, right? Or or homophobic or xenophobic or sexist. Very much so. This is so true. And it's like, well, that's exclusion if you don't, if you don't believe my voice needs to be heard. And I what I always say, because our leaders, they struggle with this. And it's like, well, Celeste, you know. You know, everybody wants to elevate. You say you want everybody to elevate their voices. And this group out here wants to, the proud boy group, you know, <laughs> wants to elevate their voice too. Right? I'm chuckling because I told you, I know what you're talking about. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and I tell them, I said, look, within our organization or your organization, you have values and standards around integrity, ethics, diversity, and inclusion. And so the voices that are elevated need to be aligned to the values and the standards of your company. And as long as they are aligned with the values and standards of your company, then those voices can be elevated, et cetera. But if they do not align with those values and standards, then we have a problem. We got to have that conversation. So I try to make sure that you take it off of yourself and what does Celeste believe or what does Tayo believe and what is this and what is that? Take it from the personal and make sure that you are aligning it to the organizational. And that really helps them to say, oh, yeah, that's great. Because, you know, there's still there's still that conflict avoidance. Right. Nobody likes to argue with people. All the, well, Some people do. But nobody is some people. <laughs> most people don't like to just they don't like that conflict. And in order for us to, as you know, in order for us to get to that state of inclusion that we want to get to. We have to have those uncomfortable conversations. And so while we're having those uncomfortable conversations, we need to make sure that those conversations are aligned with the values of the company that you belong to. And if you don't have those values and standards as a company, you need to rethink where you work. (laughs) 100%. Well, there you have it, Celeste Warren. I'll make sure to put your book in, in the show notes, because if it's anything like this, I know that a lot of people are going to gain from it. And more importantly, they're going to find themselves in the book and figure out how they could start. But I'll, I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. And I'm excited to hear this. I've been watching a series of your interviews and it's been fun seeing the engagement that comes from that. So uh, thank you for doing that. I have one final question. And you saw my book earlier. My mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. So my question to you, Celeste, is how do you use your difference to make a difference? I use my difference to make a difference every day in the role that I'm in. I try to make sure that how I felt as a person who was different throughout going to an all-white school, unfortunately, I didn't go to my dad's school, going to an all-white school, going to a predominantly white university and grad school, being in organizations that are predominantly white, I use how I felt in some of those positions Sometimes how I felt marginalized, how I felt attacked at some points early on. I try to make sure that I remember that and use that to make sure that nobody else feels that way. Who I encounter, my shadow of my leadership, my sphere of span of influence, 
that they don't feel the way I did. I got to make sure that that happens. Love that. Love that. Well, thank you so much, Celeste. This has been a real pleasure. I could see you doing that. I know you have done it and I know you continue to do that. So thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a true honor. Well, thank you. I enjoyed the conversation and this has been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Kings, Queens of Royalty. Until next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.